0: special edition of The Scoop. I'm Dinah Jansen. On June 24th, the U.S. Supreme Court overruled its nearly 50-year-old precedent of Roe v. Wade, the 1973 case that legalized abortion in America. Here today to discuss the impact of the Supreme Court's June 24th overturning of Roe v. Wade and its wider impacts are Professor Nick Bala from the Faculty of Law, Dr. Paul Gardner of the Department of History, and Dr. Ashley Waddington of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Queen's University. And to get the ball rolling, I'd like to talk with all of you about Roe v. Wade. Can we learn a little bit more about the case and and the constitutional implications it's had over the last half century, and what happened to overturn Roe v. Wade on June 24th? Paul, maybe you can get us started.
1: Sure, and there's a lot of big questions there, so there's there's a lot to cover, but... I guess a place to start is that prior to Roe in the United States, uh, abortion policy was determined by the states. So there were a patchwork of different sorts of regulations that could determine the kind of health care that women could receive uh, related to abortion. Um, Leading up to Roe v. Wade, there was a national debate that was going on around these sorts of topics. And part of that debate was informed by an earlier case uh, known as Griswold v Connecticut that had to do with contraception and people's access to contraception. And so part of the idea that uh, led to Roe was this idea, well, if women have access to healthcare in the form of contraception, then does that sort of right to privacy, the right to make medical decisions between a woman and her doctor also extend to abortion policy itself? Uh, And so this was a case that was uh, A test case that was sought out by interest groups, so interest groups brought this case with the purpose of testing whether abortion bans in the states could survive constitutional challenge. Uh, Roe v Wade was a decision that uh, was made by the Supreme Court that acknowledged essentially two competing interests right and that's the interest in the state of protecting prenatal life. And the interest of uh, uh, the individual rights interests of women uh, to obtain an abortion. And that decision tried to balance these rights uh, and in doing so came up with uh, a standard around viability, um, which said that essentially in the third trimester, the interest of the state in protecting prenatal life suddenly became uh, more important than the uh, individual rights interests of the woman but that in the first two trimesters, abortion should generally be readily available. Uh, Following the decision in Roe, there was uh, some political conflict, which resulted in a massive mobilization of the conservative religious right movement, specifically organizing around the idea of getting judges confirmed to the bench. Uh, this was moderately successful at various different times, but uh, when the first major test of Roe in 1992 in Planned Parenthood v. Casey came along, uh, five Republican appointed judges uh, affirmed the central holding in Roe, uh, narrowed it to some degree, but the central holding was upheld. So this accelerated even more this desire by Republicans to find judicial appointees that would specifically overturn Roe. And so we've seen some differences in the ways that Democrats and Republicans have tried to appoint judges since, driven in part by Roe itself, uh, where Democrats have looked sort of more broadly at qualifications, but largely Republicans have appointed movement conservatives uh, that could be reliable votes to overturn Roe v Wade. Um, So one thing to emphasize is that Dobbs v. Jackson's Whole Women's Health didn't happen just in a vacuum by accident, that largely Roe v. Wade was driving the changes in the court that we're seeing today. Uh, And so it's not a huge surprise that after uh, gaining such a supermajority on the Supreme Court, uh, that this has been the end result.
0: Ashley and Nick, any further insights here?
2: Um, not specifically. I mean, obviously, in the Canadian context, the legal aspects of abortion care are quite different. Um, but it's interesting just to reflect on the idea that this is, to my knowledge, the only medical procedure that's actually regulated with specific uh, legislation. Um, and just as you wouldn't expect to have legislation telling people whether or not they can have an appendix removal or, or have their gallbladder removed um, you know, from the medical side of things. It doesn't really make sense to to pick and choose medical procedures that can and cannot be um, legal. So it's a it's a very strange uh, area to work in uh, to recognize that there's a, a drive to try and criminalize something that's you know to those of us who work in in healthcare just another medical procedure that people access. Um, and so it's it's um, it's a very strange uh, context to to work within.
3: <laughs> yeah. If I could uh, sort of give it a bit of Canadian context here, um, we had uh, at one time, abortion in Canada was uh, part of the criminal law. And in 1988, we had a, a decision, the Morgenthaler case that uh, struck down the abortion law. And uh, since then, it has been, as Dr. Wadlington has said, an un- Regulated area from a criminal law perspective, and it's been a decision made between a woman and her uh, physician. Um, and uh, I think one of the, to, to me, one of the interesting things is the is the role of the court, in the Supreme Court of the United States, Supreme Court of Canada, and the tremendously politicized nature of the, uh, particularly the constitutional law process in the United States, which is quite different from Canada. I would say that, you know, one um, analogy, if you want, that we've seen here, of course, is about, and that's really ongoing, is about uh, medical assistance in dying, made, which has been litigated in Canada, and uh, there is this sort of interaction between the uh, decisions of the Supreme Court and the Federal Parliament regulating that it's still an ongoing evolving area. I think it's certainly important for Canadians to be thinking about uh, Rowan Wade and it, it will have implications in Canada, but it's also important, uh, at least for a Canadian audience, to recognize that we have a, a very different kind of uh, both legal process and political process and and frankly, political environment, uh, as well as a different healthcare system. Um, so, uh, you know, the fact that we essentially have uh, government you know single-payer medical care across Canada There's certainly issues about access to contraception abortion but they're very different from from the United States and I think as Paul was really pointing out though um, to me sitting on on our side of the border uh, it, it, you know, the United States seems like a deeply divided country um, and it's not it's not just happened you know, a month ago, it's been gradually developing for 50 years. So uh, that's an important context to keep keep in mind. And thinking about, you know, is that a, uh, from a Canadian perspective, is this something we'd like to have a country like the United States? Or are we sort of more happy in some ways with the kind of uh, society and political and legal structures that we have? And how can we avoid, to me at least, how can we avoid getting into some of the Controversy that's going on in the United States, which, frankly, from here um, looks a little bit uh, uh, destructive and uh, and um, certainly one uh, uh, a system that is in uh, near crisis. I think between the the courts, the Congress, the presidential situation there it's very concerning. Uh, certainly, if the United States, as the United States go through a crisis, as they say when. If the United States, if they if, if they sneeze, we catch a cold. So we want we'll, certainly we will you know looking at what's going on there certainly significant and including I'm sure that, that Dr. Wad, is going to talk to us a little bit about um, you know Americans coming to Canada to get uh, medical care how that's going to affect uh, access for Canadians to health care and so on.
0: Thank you so much. And now I wonder if we can explore what the constitutional implications are for the millions of people seeking abortion care, given that. Each state has different laws, and several states have already begun uh, banning abortions outright, with more states expected to follow suit. What's happening here at the constitutional level for people who need abortion care?
1: Paul? Sure. So several states have what are known as trigger laws. Uh, These are laws that would have been passed since 1973 when Roe was handed down, which say if Roe v. Wade were ever overturned, That there would be a statute regulating abortion. Those statutes can look different like have different sorts of specific regulations. Some of them completely outlaw abortion from conception. So certainly in some states that's what we're looking at is no access to abortion care from conception. Some of those statutes have different sorts of regulations around whether there are exceptions for rape and incest whether there are exceptions for health of the mother, whether there are exceptions for major birth defects. Other states like the one in like Mississippi, which was the uh, where the decision uh, in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health came out of, uh, limit abortion to the first 15 weeks. Um, and I'm sure Professor Waddington can tell us a little bit more about sort of the feasibility of that. That's certainly something that we're hearing about. Um, But there is going to be a variety of different uh, limits on on abortion access. Um, It will affect different women differently depending on where they live. We have to remember, for example, that some people are closer to state borders than others. Uh, Missouri is one of these states with trigger laws, but women in Kansas City, for example, may have an easier time crossing the border into Kansas, whereas others may have to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles um so there really is going to be a variety we will probably see substantial legislative action within the states um there are various states that don't have trigger laws and also don't have uh so, so another example of something that would be in effect immediately is states that never repealed their pre-row laws so a state like Wisconsin for example has abortion regulations on the books that date to before Roe, which be, get it come back into effect post Roe, but then there will be other states that have promised that they're going to open special legislative sessions in order to uh, create additional regulations around abortion. Um, meanwhile, so, uh, there are a handful of states, mainly on the west coast and uh, uh, in, and the on the two coasts, that are expanding access to abortion. Uh, some of with some of which with an eye to how they can serve populations from other states that may restrict access going forward. Uh, so it really is going to be going back to that patchwork that I mentioned at the outset of the show, that we're going to have this patchwork where depending on the geography uh, that you live in, it's really going to affect the access to care that you have. Thanks so much. Now,
0: uh, over to you, Ashley. I wonder if you can uh, pick up maybe on some of uh, Paul's comments there, uh, but also comment on what the immediate and long-term implications for access to abortion care and and even contraception, what these are in the U.S. and, And then we can lead into perhaps a discussion into comparisons for legal context for contraception and abortion care in Canada. Ashley, can you take it away?
2: Yeah, I mean, I really empathize with um, you know patients who are capable of pregnancy living in the states with this sort of patchwork approach to you know what's legal and what's not depending on where you're living. Um, and uh, I, I also empathize with the healthcare providers who are trying to navigate, trying to figure out what exactly does the law in their state allow or not allow. Um, and I, I'm hearing a lot of discussion around that in in. Uh, online groups that I belong to with other um, reproductive rights providers in the US and and even just uh, on social media generally that there already seems to be a fair bit of lack of understanding about what is and is not allowed at this point and I'm hearing stories of people being denied access to care for you know a life-threatening situation like ectopic pregnancy um, you know miscarriage which is a non-viable pregnancy which really shouldn't be uh, impacted by these laws at all if, if we we're thinking from a logical perspective. Um, and even I've heard stories of people being denied access to care that's completely separate from reproductive health care, but um, medications that are used, for example, that are teratogenic or harmful to a developing pregnancy and women being denied um, you know, refills on prescriptions for those medications that they're taking for conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and things that are completely uh, separate from this entirely. Um, and so it seems that people are depending on where they're working and what they anticipate the political climate to be in their state are sort of going broke and kind of interpreting what they think could be harmful or or, or could put them at legal risk and and making decisions that really, from my understanding, and I'm not not a legal mind, so I don't completely understand the wording of of the decision, but to my mind, shouldn't be, uh, you know, affected by this law, this change in law at all. Um, But I think that there's just this very cautious approach because obviously healthcare providers and patients themselves don't want to put themselves at legal risk. And right now it's a bit of a just all over the map in terms of what people understand to be legal and and what the different legal context is. And so it's very difficult for patients, um, but very difficult for healthcare providers as well who worry about putting themselves at legal risk and providing routine care for things like tropic pregnancy, for example. And so that. I, I can't imagine working in a climate like that. I just can't imagine not knowing, like, is it OK to do this or could I go to jail for this? Like it's just and sitting with that patient in front of you who needs the care that you're there to provide. It's just, I cannot even imagine what that's like um, with regards to access to contraception. So I've also heard a lot of confusion around that. Um, it seems that uh, many patients and sort of lay people, Uh, conflate the access to contraception as being something that's decided by Roe, and it's not specifically um, addressed in in the Roe decision, Um, but I have certainly heard about concerns about whether or not contraception is the next thing that's going to fall and access to contraception uh, could potentially be compromised. I think it's very important for people to understand uh, that all of the contraceptive methods that we use in North America uh, work through a pre-fertilization mechanism. So The the concern that people have about whether that would be impacted by Roe is if we're going to recognize a fertilized egg as having the same rights as a full-grown human, um, any mechanism of pregnancy prevention that actually prevents implantation of a fertilized egg and and the development of a pregnancy uh, would then potentially be covered by the same legal um, decisions. But all of the contraceptive methods that we use in Canada work through mechanisms that prevent fertilization in the first place. Um, So we don't have any methods that actually work by preventing implantation of a fertilized egg. Um, Having said that, sometimes the the medical way that things work don't find their way into legislators' um, understanding of the body. Um, But uh, I I think it's important to keep that context in mind because Roe shouldn't impact access to the contraceptive methods that we have uh, here in Canada and in, in North America generally. Uh, Because they all work by preventing fertilization and not by preventing implantation. So it it feels a little bit like splitting hairs (laughs) to kind of get down to that level of detail. Um, But realistically, I I think if lawmakers were listening to the science of how these these methods work at preventing pregnancy, um, then those shouldn't be affected by a row. But I know that sometimes the science doesn't make its way all, all the way into the legislation. So,
3: Nick, let's hear from you. One of the implications, I think, of uh, the decision in, in Dobbs is uh, around how broad the decision is. And I think as a matter of logic, um, the or, or interpretation of the words of the American Constitution, in part, this is about due process and restriction of liberty and uh, the, the history was, in fact, that the first um, uh, effort to uh, grant rights was around contraception and to say, oh, people uh, have the right to have, as aspects of their liberty, the right to access to contraception. That was then expanded to um, abortion in Rowan Wade, and then much more recently in the United States and as in Canada, the concept of liberty was expanded to include the right to have uh, to choose one's uh, spouse and to allow same-sex marriage. So the concepts of around uh, liberty have been gradually expanded and have covered now same-sex marriage, uh, anal intercourse, other kinds of acts that were at one time criminalized have now been held to be unconstitutional. And so there's a concern, and it's not just a a sort of an academic concern, the concurring opinion of Clarence Thomas in this recent decision in the United States said, well, we are striking down uh, the abortion law, but we should also be or someone should bring before us as a court questions around same-sex marriage uh, and other related issues. And when the time comes, we should strike down the laws that permit that as well. Uh, and, uh, and indeed the, you know, the core of the argument uh, made by uh, those who've been attacking abortion law, in part the so called originalist doctrine in the United States, which is uh, well in whether one says in uh, 1776 or 1783 or 1868 or way back when these uh, provisions were, were drafted, the drafters couldn't have intended to uh, grant a right to abortion or or certainly weren't recognizing same-sex marriage. Uh, And so if one accepts that kind of argument, the logic of this would be to roll back uh, laws around contraception, and I think particularly same-sex marriage. And I suspect that that will be coming, at least as a a challenge. Um, And the, the logic or the interpretation that i think of clarence thomas actually has significant force however i see the legal process everywhere but particularly the united states is much more politicized and while there has been a lot of uh, effort to uh, strike down the abortion laws it seems that same-sex marriage has now didn't have you know 15 years ago but at this point there doesn't seem to be the political will to take it on. And I think that that will affect the the, the litigation in in the United States. So, and and certainly around contraception, uh, it obviously at one time, it was a crime to use contraception to sell contraception. I think those times have passed, even for the, you know, largely uh, religious right in the United States, but, uh, you know, obviously we're also in a dynamic situation and things could, could change. So people understandably Concerned about those issues, let alone the issues that Dr. Waddington is talking about, which is, uh, you know, it's not exactly, at least in some people's minds, where, where contraception ends and abortion begins, although I think it's a pretty clear uh, medical line. It's understandable that people are confused. She also, I think, raised one of the issues, which is, um, you know, who decides what, how the present laws are going to be applied. And so we're seeing not only differences between states. Uh, But also within states, there are different actors, legal actors, and including prosecutors, some prosecutors are saying, well, uh, I'm going to prosecute, you know, someone who might leave this state to have an abortion. And others are saying, no, I won't. And in fact, I won't even prosecute within the state uh, because I disagree with the Supreme Court of the United States or whatever. So it's a very much a patchwork in the United States and, and understandably one that causes uh stress to uh mainly in particular to the women but as as you know also the healthcare providers who in some ways um you know interesting are, are maybe more vulnerable um and and we've certainly seen this again with political violence in the united states in fact you know it's been the, the abortion providers who've been uh you know seeming to face the greatest personal risk compared to the women seeking abortions. And similarly, I think if there are prosecutions, uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, physicians may be a more inviting target than, than women who obtain an abortion.
1: Paul? I was going to say, I think this is an important point because most state legislation that does restrict abortion does criminalize it for the healthcare providers rather than the women. Uh, this is for any number of reasons, but probably the most relevant one is the sort of political impalatability of prosecuting uh, pre- uh, pregnant people who have obtained abortions. Um, that instead it does create this chilling effect around healthcare providers. Um, and it's also because of the sort of way that the pro life movement has uh, really sort of. Uh, described women as, as victims of abortion, right? That, so it's uh, another reason why it's less likely uh, that, the, that the women would be targeted by these statutes and more likely that healthcare providers. So it, it really is a very real concern um, and does lead to, to this effect that we see where uh, on the supply side, there's, there's a lot of concern about what can be done.
2: I think one of the major challenges that's leading to the difficulty in interpreting sort of what what is and isn't allowed is the word abortion itself. So um, having a law that outlines abortion does not actually make sense just based in language. Um, So the word abortion is, you know, means the ending of a pregnancy. And when we're talking about it from a political point of view, we're often talking about what we term usually therapeutic or elective abortion. So the deliberate ending of a pregnancy. Um, But abortion is also the word that we use to describe somebody who has what's called a spontaneous abortion or miscarriage. So when a pregnancy ends, you know, without a deliberate act, but because it just happens naturally. Um, some people have expanded the word abortion to include care for ectopic pregnancies, which are pregnancies outside of the uterus, um, which we don't traditionally think of as, as abortions, but they certainly are pregnancies that aren't able to proceed. And so in, in that sense, when we're talking about the language, um, they are pregnancies that will eventually abort on their own and, and stop developing. And so the word abortion is a, is a broad term. And you know, when we talk about legal, um, definitions, we really need to have precision in the language because what I see happening is people are interpreting um, a regulation around abortion to mean the techniques that we use to um, proceed with elective or therapeutic abortions. so deliberate ending of a pregnancy, and that can include the use of medications, it can include surgical procedures, and so people are sort of taking the leap from the word abortion to mean that we can't do those um, surgical procedures or provide those medications, even in the context that this is a natural abortion that's occurred. It's a pregnancy that's not going to uh, be viable or continue on its own. And so that's where the, the worry comes in that, you know, if somebody shows up with a non-viable pregnancy that, that's, you know, going to result in a miscarriage and people are concerned, well, can I use the medications? Can I use the surgical techniques to manage that? And that's a completely separate issue from the elective termination of an unwanted pregnancy, um, you know, except that we use the same instruments, essentially, you know, we use the same treatments to, to achieve those goals. Um, and so I think it's, it's a real challenge with the precision in the language and the way that um, the right has really um, stolen the word abortion or sort of <laughs> laid claim to the word abortion to be synonymous with uh, elective or, or therapeutic abortion, when actually as a medical term, it actually applies to all non-viable pregnancies. Um, And so that's where I think some of the confusion lies in terms of, can I treat somebody who's having an ectopic pregnancy because the same medications or the same surgical techniques uh, might be used in somebody who has a viable pregnancy, but who is choosing to, to terminate that pregnancy. So I I think it's from my perspective, you know, I think of law as being something where where language and terminology has to be so precise and so careful. And um, I think where the problem is with this is that, when we use the word abortion, it's a very imprecise term, actually. And so it makes it hard for people to interpret what can I and not can, what can I or not do for patients who require treatment in the context of pregnancy, whether viable or non-viable. Um, and I see people taking the most conservative approach, you know, out of their concern that they might put themselves at legal risk. And, um, you know, the discussion around do we even offer treatment for people who have non-viable pregnancies, and, and that should not be controversial. I mean, if if the pregnancy has on its own, um, you know, failed to develop or, or stopped developing on its own, you know, providing a medical intervention to, to resolve that situation should not be controversial by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I see that that's where the, the imprecision and the confusion lies is um you know, can we even use these techniques or these medications in a, in a different context that's a little bit separate from elective abortion.
0: And Ashley, what about the day-to-day comparisons for access to contraception or abortion care right here in Canada? Uh, do people that are pregnant require some kind of justification for abortion care in terms of the um, uh, nomenclature you were just talking about?
2: Typically not in Canada. So as we talked about, um, you know, abortion, elective abortion was decriminalized in Canada in 1988. Uh, So we don't actually have legal regulations around who can access it or how or when. Um, Having said that, the vast majority of elective pregnancy termination occurs in the first trimester. Um, Patients do not require justification for that, that they can choose to do that um, of their own volition for their own reasons. I would argue, as a healthcare provider, it's actually none of my business why somebody wants to end their pregnancy. If that's the right decision for them, what they're entitled to is is a discussion of the health risks and the pros and cons of that um, decision, and not for my judgment or my, you know, for me to weigh in on what their reasons are. Um, you know, a, a few abortions that occur beyond the first trimester are far less common, uh, but typically still occur prior to viability, and those tend to not be so controversial. Um, It's extremely rare in Canada for uh, pregnancy to be terminated beyond the point of viability. And as far as I'm aware, it only really takes place in the context of severe uh, maternal disease or um, severe fetal disease or compromise that would lead to uh, the death of the the fetus, the mother or both. Um, So it's not like people are having elective abortions beyond the point of viability. That's exceedingly rare. Um, and in the cases that it does take place, there are, you know, very, very unique circumstances around those situations. Um, and so it's, it's not that people need to justify it, but it's also not that people are kind of showing up when they're 36 weeks pregnant and being, you know, I don't think I'm going to go through with this. I'm just going to terminate. Like, that's just that's not what happens, even though, um, you know, conservative lawmakers would suggest that that's true. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we don't need to justify our reasoning. People are allowed to make their decisions. Uh, but generally, those those abortions that are most controversial, the ones that are further along in pregnancy, are typically done for medical reasons, and um, you know, oftentimes in very tragic circumstances. And I think that that gets lost sometimes in the political discussion around this.
3: Yeah, if I could, if I could just uh, so yeah, one of the interesting things in Canada is those who are trying to promote restrictions on abortion. Um, are, uh, as was suggested by Ashley, some of them are focusing on very late-term uh, abortions. But one of the interesting things is uh, Leslyn Lewis, who is now running for the leadership of the Conservative Party and is the most, I think, one of the most pro-life politicians in Canada, is, and her supporters are seizing on Uh, situations where uh, an abortion is sought for uh, a bad reason, I use that in quotation marks, and in particular, oh, we do know that there are some women, and I think it's a very small minority, but who choose to have an abortion because of the gender of their child of the sex. And they say, oh, I'm pregnant. I've had uh, an ultrasound. I realize it's a female. I already have two females. I think I want an abortion for that reason. And I, I think um, you know, most, or, or certainly you know, many Canadians would say, well, that's not a very good reason to have an abortion, or maybe we should even make that criminal. And that's what her, and, and of course, this is intended uh, to be a, a thin edge of a wedge. Um, and it's, I think, uh, a sort of plausible political argument, but clearly most people would say, well, but we're just not going there at all. Uh, but if we were sort of ranking reasons, that would not be a, a, a reason that most Canadians would support, but we're just, and, and so that's sort of an interesting uh, dimension to the, to the debate that's going on in Canada in that, of course, the vast majority of women, it's a combination of economic, social, psychological uh, reasons, and, um, Uh, and as well as rape incest medical reasons and so on so um but there is a sort of that kind of floats around out there in in this country right now uh is floating around um and certainly something we have heard and probably in the coming uh months we'll hear more of and and certainly if she uh, or one or two other uh pro-life people were uh the leader of the party we would we would see that uh or hear hear more about that.
0: And now I wonder what the constitutional implications would be should a pro-life person be elected as prime minister what impact that could have on future constitutional rights for people seeking abortion care in Canada
2: thoughts Can I just make a quick comment um could we not use the term pro-life <laughs> these um, people are definitely not pro-life um they are not in favor of uh you know protecting the life of pregnant people, um, the preferred term would be anti-abortion or
0: anti-choice. Sorry. Oh, thank you for that correction. I just uh, learned something new and appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Yes. So, yes. What would this look like in terms of a change in governance to one with an anti-abortion or anti-choice platform? What would this look like in the constitutional perspective vis-a-vis the rights of people seeking abortion care here in Canada?
3: By the way, if I could just observe, and I can appreciate uh, Dr. Waddington's uh, perspective on it, particularly as a physician, no physician wants to be considered to be anti-life, uh, but uh, it really points out how uh, these issues are characterized by advocates, by service providers, by people who are affected, is helps shape the debate. And and you're right that um, it it was, I think, a conscious decision among people who are anti-abortion to call themselves pro-life and indeed it's similar though you know in the united states people don't say they're pro-abortion they're pro-choice which sounds you know like a nicer way let's just sort of keep away from what's actually being done so one can kind of go back and forth on that but you know it is certainly if uh you know the issues can and um er may arise in canada particularly uh if we got a certain political context although i think you know the weight of public opinion is so strongly pro-choice in Canada, and and I, I think that that's um, you know the way that uh, political leaders like Trudeau, but uh, you know Singh and and, and really all uh, the, the majority of political leaders that we have in this country are springing this. It's the woman's choice, and um, that that political view seems to be so strongly held that. Uh, it, it seems very, very unlikely to me or inconceivable that we would actually get back into a real debate here in Canada. Uh, but it's certainly, I guess, uh, having said that, it's not uh, impossible. Uh, and in particular, it's not impossible that we at least have the issues raised in, in Parliament. Um, and indeed, you know, there are continuing efforts. There's certainly uh, people who would characterize themselves as pro-life and saying we want to bring this as a private members bill. Let's uh, have a debate about this in the House of Commons, uh, and uh, so legislation probably very narrow legislation, uh, like for example, you can't have an abortion on the ground of the of the gender selection uh, or sex selection of your uh, of your child. Uh, could be introduced and it would be sort of a step-by-step process the other thing certainly that we have in Canada and, and I think dr. Waddington can really talk about this is the reality is in, in many places there's a lack of access to uh, uh, therapeutic abortion and, and even uh, you know in some places there's difficulty in getting access to contraceptive care uh, so the the which is in Canada, largely a matter of provincial jurisdiction, and we've had litigation, by the way, about you know uh, these issues in Canada. So some physicians, you know, might be the only doctor in town saying, "Well, you you have the right to an abortion, but I'm not going to get involved in this, and you you have to you know go 300 miles away from here at your own expense find someone who's going to do this, and um, that's an issue. Now, it's been partly litigated, so there are responsibilities on uh, healthcare providers who will not um, uh, provide the services to make sure that they are making appropriate referrals, but even there, and this was litigated in this country, there were healthcare providers saying, "I'm just not going to get involved here. It's not. It's not. That's not what I do." And if you're a family doctor, for example, I think now anywhere in Ontario or Canada, you have an, a, an obligation. If someone shows up, you can't just say, "Well, it's against my beliefs to uh, even make a referral." Uh, even though one could say, well, that's, you know, part of a process. So we've gone quite far and in, in, in that's been litigated. So um, in that context, I think we've gone pretty far in establishing some important precedents in Canada about access to this kind of uh, service. But that that isn't a context in which though the legislation, to the extent that we have it, um, has been very supportive of having access to this kind of health care. Uh, if we had a different legislative context, we could you know, potentially have different different outcomes.
1: One thing that I would just add to that is, so if we're talking about so how this affects the Canadian political context, it's worth noting some of the institutional features of the United States that uh, led us to this point, uh, m- most of which are not Uh, available in Canada. So for example, uh, the United States uh, has a much more powerful Supreme Court that's more likely to uh, overrule past precedents. Uh, The United States also has a highly politicized Supreme Court appointment process uh, and the uh, Canadian Supreme Court has not reached this level of politicization where appointments are made based on sort of the likely rulings that judges are going to make. Uh, Canada has what was typically understood to be a more majoritarian system than the United States in the sense that uh, the United States has a lot of veto points. There are lots of places where legislation can get held up, which leads to gridlock and high levels of polarization. And it's also worth noting that uh, there are systems that privilege minority outcomes uh, the Electoral College, for example, has twice in the past five elections delivered presidents that did not win the popular vote, and those presidents uh, nominated and confirmed five justices, four of which were in the majority that overturned Roe just the other day. At the same time, the Senate uh, has uh, been elected by uh, voters who primarily voted for Democrats in uh in almost every year uh, in the past 20 years. That same Senate confirmed the justices that again overturned Roe, despite the fact that the senators that voted in favor of many of those justices represented well under half the people of the United States, right? So there are lots of these institutional features that are sort of unique to the United States that led to the specific moment that we are in right now. And the lack of those features in Canada might sort of you know, give us some uh, assurance that, that Canada is not likely to go down the same path anytime soon, although Professor Bala did sort of show us some of the ways uh, that, that we might sort of be concerned or what it would look like. Thank you so much, Paul. Ashley, back over to you.
2: Um, I, I don't know if now is the time to talk about it, but we've been hinting at um, the legal aspects of abortion access in Canada are, are relatively unimpeded, but the the actual process of accessing abortion in Canada is far from perfect. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, while people have the the legal right to access it, that doesn't mean that it's easy to uh, achieve, especially for people living in rural and remote areas Um, and in in certain provinces that, you know, also put a lot of obstacles in the way of uh, people being able to achieve abortion care. Um, So just to speak a little bit to that, I mean, we are hopeful and, and remain hopeful that access to medical abortion is expanding in Canada, and so there's two broad uh, types of abortion care that people can access. One is medication uh, abortion, and then another is a surgical procedure. Um, and so the medical abortion option is far more available because you don't need somebody who's trained in providing surgical care. You don't need um, a surgical center where you can uh, <laughs> undertake that. It's essentially you need somebody who can prescribe the medications to you and and arrange the appropriate follow up um, and and sort of provide the appropriate counseling. And so. Um, we have seen an expansion in access to medical abortion in Canada in the last few years since we had the approval of a medication called mifepristone, um, which is uh, the, what we typically think of a, a medical abortion, or the mifepristone, or RU four eighty six is the other name for that drug, um, and so that has expanded access uh, to some extent, but. Um, there's still limited access to surgical abortion, um, and certainly some of that is political. So it's not that you don't have a gynecologist or a trained uh, surgeon who can provide the actual surgical technique, it's that you don't have a supportive uh, hospital or a supportive clinic um, that will allow them to do so. Um, And so most surgical abortion care is limited to larger centres at this time. Um, And, uh, you know, medical abortion is great to the extent that you can use it but it's only available to people sort of early in pregnancy so prior to nine weeks gestation um it's you should have access to backup of a surgical procedure in case the medical abortion doesn't work so there is a failure rate about two to five percent of people that take the medications and and it just doesn't work in a variety of ways and in rare cases that can include Um, you know, running into significant bleeding and and the need for kind of urgent surgical care. And so again, while access to medical abortion is improving, you do still need to have some access to the backup um, that you would need in an emergency. And and so that can be a limitation as well. Um, And then certainly, as we were talking about, most abortion care does occur in the first trimester in Canada. And so for the Majority of people who are under nine weeks, medical abortion may be an option for them, but there will always be people who are later along in pregnancy for whom a surgical procedure is required, and in many cases that does involve traveling uh, many hundreds of kilometers to um, achieve access to that, and that can further delay their ability to access care if they need to make arrangements in order to travel, and especially if they have um, you know, a referring healthcare provider who's not supportive of the decision and, and can actively try to obstruct them from being able to access that care. And although we say that that's not supposed to happen, uh, you know, anecdotally we know that that does happen from time to time. That uh, people aren't getting referrals or are actually actually having um, healthcare providers who are obstructing their access to abortion care. I don't think that's common, but we do see it from time to time for sure. Um, And so the access issue in Canada, like we can pat ourselves in the back for having a more permissive legal environment, but we're certainly not doing a perfect job in providing uh, equal and equitable access um, to all people in Canada who might require abortion services. And that's particularly true in some of our eastern provinces um, where they sort of put obstacles in people's way uh, to try and prevent them from accessing abortion care, which is really unfortunate.
3: Maybe if I if if I could uh, just come back to the point that Paul made about a different set of institutional issues which I think is an interesting one in terms of uh, when we in Canada look at what's going on with the United States Supreme Court and um, as he points out um, particularly in the context of a a deeply divided Congress uh, the United States Supreme Court has become a very important political actor there and Deeply politicized. One of the features that they have there that uh, certainly from here looks problematic is they have lifetime appointments. And so uh, a significant number of their judges are over 75. Uh, and they're, you know, some of them, Amy Cooper, is very relatively young, is going to be there for decades. In Canada, we have retire- mandatory retirement for all judges at 75, uh, which I think gives any individual appointment less weight and perhaps more interestingly or as interesting uh, we have an ethos in this country in terms of um, the legal profession of the judiciary and largely our politicians um, that it's a non-partisan or less partisan process so we don't identify uh, judges as you know, liberals, Conservative, New Democrats. Um, although if one roots back in their history, one can probably find, you know, what party they were were supporting, and sometimes not. Uh, in the United States, it just seems so uh, politicized um, that once they're on the court, they really follow. And we've really seen these deep partisan divides um, that we don't see on the Supreme Court in in Canada. It is an interesting, always political question to what extent Canadian society will evolve along uh, an American line, if you want. Um, and there was, you know, I guess I'm old enough, and I'm old enough to talk about miles rather than kilometers, but I think good to be corrected when we're getting the moderator. I'm also old enough to remember when the Charter of Rights came into force and there was a, a set of questions about to what extent will the Canadian, Constitutional law and Canadian legal system become more like the American system, and I think it has developed in a in a unique way, and and one that I think is a healthier one for society. The court is very important, but and and highly respected, but it's not as politicized as in the United States, um, and I think on the whole that's a a healthier uh, situation. Um, But we'll have to see, you know, at one moment, Doug Ford was complaining about, well, one of Trudeau's judges is going to make a decision about my legislation about, you know, municipal voting rights and so on. Uh, I think largely uh, there's a lot of pushback when people, when politicians start talking that way, Uh, you know, we certainly, you know, academics do look at the court and say, oh, this was a Harper appointee, this was a Trudeau appointee or a Crickham appointee, and one can see You know patterns there. There's no question that who appointed a a, a judge is is an interesting factor, but it's certainly not nearly as pronounced as it has been in the United States. And and um, uh, for a variety of reasons, I think um, this has been a a healthier situation um, for for our society. And as Paul points out it means the court is very important, but it's not uh, as important as it's become in the United States.
0: Okay, thank you. So I'd like to hear from all of you about uh, your prognoses for the situation for people seeking abortions in the United States, but also right here in Canada. Ashley, let's start with you.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I think it remains to be seen at, All of us who are involved in providing reproductive healthcare in Canada are aware of this decision and and sort of in our own ways preparing for whether or not uh, this will lead to an influx of uh, patients from from the United States seeking care here. Um, I don't think we know that yet um, because, again, we don't know exactly where things will shake out in terms of what states uh, will allow um, abortion care and ongoing reproductive healthcare and what states will have limitations and sort of geographically which of those states, uh, you know, where they're located and how easy it is for people to travel to Canada, for example. Um, You know, my impression would be that many American women would, if they could, even if they can't access abortion care in their own state, be more likely to travel to a neighboring state or to another uh, state within their country, um, because they may or may not be able to use things like their health care to, to, you know, if they have health insurance to pay for their um, care, that type of thing, which would be more complicated coming up to Canada. Um, but I have no doubt in my mind that we will see some um, patients making their way all the way to Canada, uh, whether that's because they have friends or family here that they can lodge with, or, you know, <laughs> realistically, because healthcare is less expensive in Canada for people if they're paying out of pocket. So although the travel uh, may set them back, it might actually, on the whole, end up being more affordable for people to come to Canada to receive their care. Um, and so we're all Kind of preparing ourselves, and, and I think in some ways differently across the country based on, you know, geographically who we're closest to. So, for example, here in Kingston, um, you know, our closest state is New York State, which protects uh, access to abortion care. Uh, and so, I don't think we're expecting a huge influx of patients because the majority of patients in the closest geographic area will still have access. Um, But having said that, um, there certainly could be people coming um, up here from from states that are more restrictive, again, particularly if they have friends or family or some other reason to make their way here. I certainly think that larger centers that would be um, more likely for people to have access by flying to. So, for example, like Toronto, Vancouver, um, you know, Montreal, larger centers like that will probably see the bulk of the influx um, in smaller centers like ours, where people would generally arrive by train or car are probably um, not going to see as much of an influx here. Um, A couple of things that we need to keep in mind. Uh, is access to medical abortion does typically require at least two visits, and so it does uh, generally require that patients would be uh, here in Canada for several days in order to achieve the appropriate follow-up for their care. Surgical abortion is a little bit easier to access, as often can take place with just one visit, depending on how far along people are in the pregnancy. Um, And so, you know, as I was saying, one of the, the improvements in abortion access in Canada has been improved access to medical abortion care, but that might not be The most likely form of abortion that people who are coming from the states may be seeking to access because they may be preferentially looking for surgical abortion that that is a little bit faster to you know just um in terms of their time spent away from from friends and family and work and everything um and so it, it is harder to expand the accessibility of surgical abortion because it does depend on having the resources available a little bit more so than medical abortion which essentially requires a prescriber and a pharmacy to dispense the medications Um, And so it remains to be seen, we're all aware of it as an issue, we're all um, also sort of thinking about are there ways that we can improve access to contraception so again, uh, if people want to to make their way to Canada to have an IUD placed or something like that, you know we're all preparing ourselves for the the potential likelihood of that happening. but, but it's a little bit hard to predict exactly what we're going to see um, as we start to see what states, um, you know, put regulations in place and what those regulations are. So um, we're, we're on alert, but I don't think any of us have changed our practices at this point, um, but we're just kind of watching and waiting uh, and, you know, ready to help to the extent that we can, um, you know, if we do start to see an influx of patients coming from, from the states. Oh, if,
0: if I might interrupt just just ever so quickly uh, with a quick follow up question. Uh, there, there seems to be this assumption that there will be a fair amount of travel involved for people having to leave their state in order to seek abortion care. But attended to that is this apparent assumption that everyone can afford to do so. Uh, we know that there are socioeconomic considerations uh, that we haven't discussed, uh, perhaps a topic for another day. But We know in the U.S. that already a significant portion of the population does not even have access to affordable health care, period, due to a lack of insurance. Uh, What happens in these cases for people who need to travel but cannot afford to do so?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think Professor Bala made a comment about this earlier, that um, you know, oftentimes abortion takes place in the context of a number of competing concerns that people have and, and financial being one of them, you know, whether or not you can afford to, to feed the children you have or, or to you know, have a place to live or buy groceries um, can certainly impact the decision as to whether or not to continue with the pregnancy. And unfortunately, these types of um, legislative decisions um, affect the the marginalized population far more than they affect people who do have money and, and access. Um, and so it's, it's certainly um, you know, a tragic situation for those people for whom, you know from the get go, their reason for seeking abortion care is because they can't afford um, to continue with the pregnancy and then they certainly can't afford to take the steps they need to do in order to interrupt the pregnancy. So that's, that's just a really tragic scenario. There are some organizations um, who are working to provide um, funding for people who need to travel from state to state. Um, and, and there are established abortion funds that have existed for a while because we know even prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned, access to abortion care in some states was, was particularly challenging and did require people to travel. Um, and so I would encourage people, if they want to contribute to those, uh, they're typically run out of the U.S., um, but there's a number of, of established abortion funds that people can contribute funds to. Um, that would go directly into providing um, increased access and particularly in terms of funding travel and that type of thing for patients who are trying to access care.
0: Thanks so much, Ashley. Paul or Nick, what are your prognoses before we close off today?
1: Sure. So uh, as Dr. Waddington noted, a lot of this is going to be contingent on what sorts, how restrictive the laws that states uh, adopt are going to be, and we'll find that out in due course. Um, but what, uh, one irony of this may be that uh, Justice Alito noted in his decision, or in his opinion, that one of the reasons for overruling Roe, and Casey as well, was the fact that these had not sort of resolved abortion as a political issue, uh, and suggesting that there was a need to sort of get abortion issues off of the docket of the court. Um, But one thing that we'll find with some of these very, very restrictive abortion laws that are likely to be adopted is that these will be litigated in court as well from the other direction, uh, bring questions forward about uh, the court has sort of prescribed a new standard of review, which is rational basis, which generally is very permissive towards the laws that states develop. But there will be questions about whether denying someone emergency medical care or denying someone the ability to abort an ectopic pregnancy really has any rational relationship to any relevant state goals. Um, So that's one thing to look for is Will there be new cases that will ultimately not give the same level of access to abortion, but will protect uh, abortion access in some of the, the most uh, emergent cases? And so that's something that we'll be looking at in the next several years.
0: Thank you. And Nick, over to you.
1: So
3: two thoughts uh, by way of conclusion one uh, about uh, Americans coming to Canada for uh, abortion I think in Kingston you know uh, we won't see much if any on the other hand if one goes the other end of the province to uh, Windsor or other places that are across from states that may have much more restrictive laws so uh, right now Michigan seems to be having a much more restrictive law and you know there are the, the social costs and the disproportionate impact of uh, any restriction abortion in terms of I- income in particular but race and so on are, are enormous you know in detroit well you, if you have a passport which of course takes cost money too uh you can you know you you drive across to windsor or somewhere like Sault saint marie and there'll be other places i think across the west that are uh, where a Canadian medical facility is very close to a state that has restrictive abortion laws, you're probably going to see some significant implications. The other point, I guess, I come back to this: is that what what Paul mentioned. You know, what are, what are we going to see in the United States? Yeah, ironically, the decision was intended to you know uh, cause an end to controversy, or purported to be, and in fact, the controversy is clearly going to get much more intense uh, in the United States about abortion in particular, but by no means exclusively as I think to me, this is uh, as significant as abortion is, it's actually uh, uh, emblematic of a deeper set of divides in the United States and a country that is, um, you know, close to a, 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 a very deep divide uh, and, and things could get worse um, before they get better in the United States.
0: Folks, we've been chatting with Professor Nick Bala from the Faculty of Law, Dr. Paul Gardner of the Department of History and Dr. Ashley Waddington of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology here at Queen's University about the wider implications of Roe v. Wade's overturn in the United States Supreme Court decision on June 24th, 2022. Thanks for tuning into this special edition of The Scoop here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast today. Thank you, Ashley, Paul, and Nick for joining us.
1: Thanks,
2: everybody. I enjoyed the conversation very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.